look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm terrific. How about you? I'm I'm okay. Good. A little, um, a little bit of scared in this city. Well, listen, you had the daunting task of uh, of being on media all week this week, and it was a crazy week. We'll get to that in just a minute, but um, we, we're going to have to make some sense of what happened, and we've got a terrific guest that's going to help us do that. And we want to talk a little bit about. Uh, what's the potential um, economic effect of the uh, the COVID-19 uh, virus? And um, we'll have one of Canada's leading economists help us understand some of that. Yeah, we're also going to see, is um, it's Canada's health healthcare system mm-hmm. prepared for the new generation? And yeah, I'm well, not talking about the young people that are being born. Right. I'm talking about the new wave of people over the age of 65 and how's our healthcare system going to be ready. And, and this type of uh, pandemic is mm-hmm. is a good test. Well, for sure, the healthcare system is is front and center in our minds, right? But check this out. Just a quick tease, so that we you know, to keep people sticking around for this. But right now, Canadian populations comprise of about seventeen percent of people that are sixty five and older. Sixteen percent that I are fourteen and younger. Correct. Okay. So we have the same amount of people over the age of sixty five as we do under the age of fourteen. Sixty five. That population is growing rapidly. Okay. The younger is decreasing as a percentage of the population. We need a three-baby policy. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> but, but from a healthcare perspective, yeah. Faisal, we've got 304 geriatricians in the country, and we've got 2,800 pediatricians. There's an imbalance there. You think? Right. Do you think our system is ready for you know this wave of what's coming? Yeah. We've got to talk about that. So that's going to be a very interesting topic after the, after the commercial break. And so we had a very crazy week in the markets. Mm-hmm. Um what I found very interesting this week was the massive panic sell, the massive panic of everything being sold. Like, well, there's was a baby with the bathwater event, right? You just throw everything out with yeah. the bathwater, and-, and and then Thursday was a tough day for for investors on what happened. Um, it was tough for people to see their portfolios that day. It was tough to see it the next morning. Um, but um, I'm glad that this actually happened. Do tell. That will surprise people. I'm glad this actually happens for, for multiple reasons. We were saying from last year this market seemed um, a bit too frothy. There was, it was fairly or slightly overvalued. Yeah. Um, well, the economic data certainly wasn't supporting what we saw correct. in, say, the equity market rally. Correct. Right? And so, you know, the, the, the stock market is a predictor of the future. The economy and the economic numbers are the facts. Mm-hmm. The facts. That's well said. Yeah. And so when the facts tell us this is not moving in the right direction, but the stock market's up so much, we took a bit of, of, of a cautious approach last year. Mm-hmm. And I was nailed for it. Woo! Yeah, we I did. was nailed for that call. Yeah, it took some criticism. Big time. Um, and what, you, what, what, what you're talking, just for the listeners, what we did is the economic data said... Uh, economies globally were slowing, the U.S. economy was slowing, so we actually trimmed our equity position um, by mid-year. And, of course, what happened is equities continued to rally throughout that year, right? So by doing that, we left some return on the table by not being as fully exposed in equities as we were, yeah, right? Well, if, if we were fully a, a strong and perfect market timer, you're correct. No, no, but that's what the criticism came correct. from. Correct, yeah, right? you gave up some on the upside, yeah, for right. sure. Now, 
Fast forward to today. Fast forward today, we're not as exposed to the stock market as many other Canadians are. We've protected our clients to some degree. And guess what's going to be happening fairly soon, my friend? What? I'm going to be shopping. I'm going to be buying. And guess what's going to happen? I know I'm going to get nailed for it again. Well. Why are you doing this? Why are you buying when everything is looking so bad? Okay, well, don't, don't. Don't give away all your your secrets because this we're going to talk about this in <laughs> segment four. Okay, right? We I want I want to we want to talk about process for a minute because there's a whole bunch of weird things that go through people's minds when you get these big dislocations. Yeah. So I like these times because it clears out some of the excess. Yeah. It uh, gives you a gut check to realize are you able to handle this volatility? Right. Um, we used to talk about financial repression. Right. And that was where the central banks lowered interest rates so low that people had no choice but to take on risk because the interest or the return that they would get is what they need versus what, let's say, GICs or Government of Canada bonds were offering. Yes. Well, now it's changed from financial repression because we're already in low interest rates, so now we've dealt with that. Now it's called TINA, T-I-N-A. There Mm -hmm. is no other place. There's no... Alternative. There's nothing else, yeah. There's no alternative, T-I-N-A. Yeah. And now there's no alternative but to stay in the equity market. Yeah. Because you can't meet your financial goals on 0.5% interest rates. Right. Okay. So we're going to talk about positioning in the fourth quarter. I want to talk just quickly about, about something we sent out to clients this week. And Perfect. I want to share it with people. Perfect. Because let's try to make some sense of the market, right? It, it doesn't seem to make sense. And here's what I'll say. The volatility probably makes sense. I'm not sure the valuations make sense, but the volatility makes sense. Absolutely, it okay. Does. If you think of what the market is trying to price every single day, it's trying to price the unknown of of the human cost of the coronavirus. Correct. It's trying to price the unknown of the economic impact of the coronavirus, and it's now trying to price the unknown of the uh, price war. Price oil. war. Yeah, yeah. The in the oil market. And when you talk about the coronavirus itself and the and the human impact, right. What they're really worried about is. Where is it going? How fast is it going? Is it slowing down in a certain area? Yeah. Like that whole, tr- we call it the Corona tra- Tracker, right. right? Where they're trying to track everything. Right. And they can't. They cannot tell you exactly when and how much yet. Yeah, and so what happens? What happens when you get these kind of black swan, these big unknowns, is the models break down. Yeah. So how do you model those unknowns? Very, It's difficult, you right? You can't. You can't. And so the market uh, in those situations tends to get really volatile. And we see, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. Just sell everything. We'll ask questions later. That can happen. And that's the scenario that you love. Yeah. Because what happens is when the baby goes out with the bathwater, eventually you want to go find the baby again, right? There's an opportunity <laughs> there, right? Yeah. yeah. It, cre- it creates opportunities. I had a weird visual in my head. <laughs> the other side of it is the economic impact. And there's three different parts of the economic impact. I want to go through this really quickly. The economic impact of what the healthcare systems will go through. That's number one. Number two is there is a delay of 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 demand for goods and services. Yes. People are yes. everything shut down. Like Pause. you know you know it's button. really bad in Canada mm-hmm. when they shut down hockey. Right. Okay? That that's how bad it is. Yep. Okay? So they've done that. Right. So now when do we get back to the hockey season? When do we get back to buying stuff? When can 250 people or more get together in a room? Like, right. Go like, out for dinners and have banquets. Stuff like and, that, yeah. right? So those Weddings so and, that's that's deferral of demand. Right. And it's not like they're going to buy double the amount when it happens because now, so whatever's happening over the next X number of months, let's say, is gone. How, are those companies going to survive right. when they have 
who knows how many months it'll be, but in that time frame, are they going to be able to survive and pay their bills and so forth, right. and what kind of program will protect them? And can the temporarily, temporarily laid off worker pay the mortgage? Yeah. And what's happening behind the scenes that no one's really focusing on is the financial plumbing system, right. money flowing. Right. And it froze at some points in time. And this is why the central banks kicked in. Yeah, except that I would argue, I would argue that this is not a 2008. The, the central plumbing of the system is not broken. The Fed has it was provided clogged. liquidity. It it's was fine. Clogged. That's that's not our issue. The issue, um, and I'm not saying that it's not something we have to not we have to watch it. But that's not the problem right now. It's not a systemic crack in the system. Correct. Okay. The mechanisms are in place to keep the plumbing moving. The problem is we've hit the pause button. Right. There will be a temporary pause in global economies if we pursue this strategy of quarantine. The question we have to think through beyond that is one, can there be, will there be an appropriate fiscal response by governments to ensure that, uh, you know, regular Canadians, Americans, Europeans can pay the mortgage? Yep. Okay. We expect to see that from governments. They know this. The other thing is the small business person. That's the cornerstone of the Canadian economy. Can that person stay in business if nobody is coming to their shop? And they have to lay off workers. Can they pay their bills? There's going to have to be a fiscal there's response. A, there's going to be a rippling effect. To backstop that. Yeah, and we and ha- if, if they do, just let me finish this thought because yeah. I think it's important. If they do, if we can get that right, then what will happen is our finger will come off the pause button because I know what I'm going to do personally. The minute that I can go back out and I'm comfortable that you know we can go and socialize and have friends over again and go to hockey games and do all those things, immediately I'm going back to do that. Correct. And then finger comes off the pause button. Correct. But how long till that pause that's, button is that's released? The unknown, right? Right? Yep. That's the unknown. Yep. And so, with this whole coronavirus, there's another problem happening in this country, mm-hmm. Dave. In this country, we er- you talked about it earlier, there's a generational gap happening. People yes. are, are aging in this country. Yes. And is our medical system, our healthcare system, ready for this generation that's, that's now becoming probably one of the largest, if not the largest segment of our population? Yeah. And so with the healthcare system, the economy, the markets, everything going in volatility, we need to have some sort of understanding of how do you profit and protect more importantly, how do you take care of your retirement going forward. So Dave, because of the coronavirus, we are going to have our first live online session. This is a seminar we do every month. We're not going to have a group of people come to the session, but instead we're going to show it to you live online, but you still need to register for this. So go to morethemoneyradio.com. And, and connect us online so you can get access to our online session of the same seminar that we do every single month directly to you at the comfort of your own home or your, or your mobile it's device. It's like a hockey game with no fans in the stands. There right? you soccer go. Soccer game with nobody there. It's going to be fantastic. And you'll be able to communicate with us after the, the, se- the piece so you can have questions and everything like we do in a regular seminar, but you can do this online, so we're going to give it a try just to keep on educating the population considering what we have in front of us. We're going to do this live online. On Tuesday, April 21st, 7 p.m. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and more than money. Healthcare system, of course, is front and center of everybody's mind right now, given what we're facing uh, with the coronavirus. But there's there's longer term issues with the healthcare system uh, in Canada. And it's driven uh, in at least in some part uh, because of the changing demographic of our population. Yeah. Right? This now, is not something we haven't talked about before. Yeah, we've only been talking about it for, I don't know, 10 years, <laughs> yeah. every single year on the show. <laughs> yeah about this problem that's coming, and guess what? Ten years later, we're here. Yep. We're here. Yep. And so I think our, our listeners need to understand what the impacts can be. 
And so let's bring the, the professionals on here and kind of talk about what the impacts can be. Yeah, so we're, we're, um, we're pleased to have Dr. Nathan Stahl, who is a geriatrician and a research fellow at the University of Toronto and Women's College Research Institute. Uh, Dr. Stahl, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Let me see if I can uh, sort of frame the, the conversation with some interesting stats that I read um, that one of your, uh, I, I guess you had collaborated on with one of your colleagues. According to the 2019 Canadian population data, 17% of the population is now 65 or older, and 16% of the population is 14 years or younger. The first population is growing at a fast pace, the, the younger population uh, not so much on a relative basis. We have 304 geriatricians, according to your research. We have 2,800 pediatricians. It seems to me that we're positioned, uh, uh, how should I say? For it? a baby Diplomatically, boom. yeah, yeah, uh, imbalanced. Yeah, we're, it's, we're, it's an Im- yeah, it looks like we're positioned for the baby boomer. Yeah. Sorry, for baby booming to happen, yeah. but not the baby boomer that's already here. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So can, we, can you give us some context around this, uh, Dr. Stahl, and, and then we can talk about some of the challenges and areas where we can improve. Yeah, absolutely. So even though we're talking about uh, older adults, so people 65 years and older, um, it's really actually a young phenomenon, so to speak, that we have this many older people living in our society today, right. which probably reflects the fact why why there's you know talk of unpreparedness and, and a mismatch in terms of the specialists we need. So you you highlighted this up front. Um, you know the traditional when we think about population pyramids, those sort of pyramids we've all seen, where we look at the distribution of age groups in a, in society. Traditionally, these have been a, a pyramid, right? Where mm-hmm. at the top there's very few individuals, they form a point. And at the bottom, uh, you know, these, these widen out. What we're seeing now is, um, so what we're seeing now is what's called a rectangularization of this population pyramid. So it doesn't, it no longer looks like a pyramid, frankly. It looks like a, a rectangle where you're having equal distribution of age groups uh, across all the different age segments. So as you highlighted, for the first time in our society, we're having, we have more older adults than we do have uh, children, um, which is quite remarkable, right? But, but that's a relatively recent phenomenon. So in, in Canada, we only have 304 geriatricians. By comparison, there's 10 times as many pediatricians, right? So there's this imbalance, but, uh, you know, there is a, something to be said about the lack of planning, but we also have to recognize that the, demo, the population demographics we're facing today is a relatively new or young phenomenon. Right. So, so what are you concerned about when, it, when we have this, this change, Dr. Stahl? Sure. So, you know, in in medicine, uh, sometimes uh, we can be slower to change things, right? So, and and that 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 happens in or that can manifest in many different ways. So, when you talk about medical education, for example, uh, our medical schools still have a mandatory pediatrics rotation, but we don't have a mandatory geriatrics rotation or experience, right? Hmm. Um, there are, uh, when, we, when we think about rotate clinical rotations that people do, not just the classroom-based uh, education, again, we have fields where um, people may, for my, like myself, may go into a profession like internal medicine and geriatrics, and I may never interact in the clinical setting with a child again, but I've spent six weeks or more of my training in medical school uh, dedicated to the care of children. But all of us, uh, with the exception perhaps of pediatricians, are going to interact with older adults and need competence and need the ability to be look at, to be to look after older adults. So there's a there's a, a sort of famous saying in medicine that children aren't just small adults. 
reflecting the fact that you can't just extrapolate evidence and practice that you would do for adults to children. But in the same way, for a lot of things, older adults aren't just young adults. So they, they have special care needs, they have special considerations that need to be taken into account when you're managing that population. And that's why when you have an imbalance like this, when you have a lack of geriatricians, when you have a general lack, not just within medicine, but within our healthcare system of knowledge and capacity to provide geriatric care, it's concerning in, the light, in light of these uh, demographic changes. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So what... What what would you say, given what you've just said there? What are the essential services that you know that the Canadian medical system either needs more of or needs, uh, given sort of this new this new phenomenon of an of an old, of an aging population? Yeah. So the traditional model that sort of the the 304, 300 plus geriatricians we have in Canada has, has practiced by is sort of a one-on-one -on -one consultation where you sit with a patient, their caregivers, either in your office or in the hospital, and you provide a detailed consultation. Um, that's good. There's great evidence that this care can delay institutionalization, so placement in a nursing home can have really important impacts on the patients themselves. But when you think about a vast shortage, the need for knowledge, the need for capacity in the provision of geriatric care, we need to think about how can we fan out the sort of expertise of these individuals with older adults to help everyone else have the competence and capability to provide geriatric care. So that's something that's being increasingly recognized. It's not just how can we recruit more people into the field of geriatric medicine, it's how can we make everybody else have that expertise in geriatric medicine. Hmm. And I would argue, you know, that's, that's extends far beyond just the, the frontline physicians. That has to do with nursing. It has to do with all our other allied healthcare professionals. It has to do with pharmacy. It, it has to do with the whole way that a healthcare organization is run in terms of making it an age-friendly or, or older adult-friendly space that we practice medicine in. Because just, just focusing on how can we simply increase the number of geriatricians alone? We're sort of well beyond that. It's, it's one piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only solution here. That, that, that sounds great. It sounds like a long time to get, to get into practice. And if we have an aging demographic already here, the 65-year-old today may not be able to see this until when? 85? Well, well, that's if you take somebody who's an undifferentiated sort of, I guess, high school graduate or university graduate, and you're, you're putting them through medical training and, and internal medicine training and geriatric medicine training. But as clinicians and, and many healthcare professionals, we're required to keep up uh, with uh, competency and ongoing medical education. And I think there's a lot of opportunities for, and it's already happening, I should say. This is not something that's not happening, but I think there's an opportunity to scale it up mm -hmm. to how can we make everyone more aware and more competent and more capable to provide geriatric care. And I think that's how you could see more short-term uh, gains and benefits for individuals. You know, I've, it, it, this leads me to an experience that my brother and I have. So my, my mother is suffering dementia, and it's getting progressively worse. But maybe you can speak to this as one of the experiences. My brother gets um, extremely frustrated when he has to take my mom into uh, into the healthcare system from this perspective. Um, my mom is very skilled socially, and so if you ask her a question, she can actually re she will respond with an answer with confidence that sounds accurate, but it's completely fabricated. 
right? And so my brother uh, tries as part of his experience with the health community to, to give a heads up to the doctors and nurses ahead of time that if they want confirmation about what's really going on, if you have a question about what, what the reality is, you got to come to me to ask that question because my mom truly doesn't know the answer to the question. And invariably what happens is the, uh, the healthcare system, uh, the, the doctors and the nurses are asking her, right? They defer to that. And is this some of the training that you're referring to? It's, it's this kind of stuff, just as an awareness of that? Uh, because I think that in our, in our family's particular case, we could really create um, um, a lot less confusion and more efficiency in the system if there was a mechanism to deal with that, given our specific circumstances. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, so you, yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, a really, uh, you know, excellent example in terms of, uh, indeed, in terms of what we're talking about here. So, so you've touched on so many important aspects here. The first thing is that you're right. Uh, people who have dementia, um, there's the prevailing sort of societal stigma that surrounds these individuals that sort of suggests they're totally incapacitated, right? Right. And, and you're right, they can easily fool people uh, and people within the healthcare system themselves. And, and sort of that, that is exactly what we're talking about when we say that everyone needs to have some familiarity and some right. competency in managing these patients. Because yes, this happens all the time. People tend to retain their social graces uh, when, they, when they have dementia, especially ones who, uh, before they, they, they may have been diagnosed with dementia, already tended to be the social type, the higher educated type, the ones, those, those types of people can fool people very easily. Easily, yep. and yep. we're not going to be, be we're not going to be meeting their needs uh, if people can't pick up on that. The other thing you you put you sort of alluded to was, was your brother as well, right? Which is um, we don't do a, as good of a job, I would argue, in terms of integrating the family caregivers who participate in the care into our healthcare system, particularly for older adults, right? And yeah. these are there are big gaps where people have big misunderstandings about the roles that family caregivers are 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 playing in the care of the individuals, the types of complex tasks family caregivers are being asked to do. So absolutely, like that is a that is a very good example of what we're talking about here. Dr. Stahl, we've quickly run out of time, but I want to thank you very much for uh, taking some time and raising awareness uh, even further. Great work. Great. Thanks so much for having me. We've been joined by jo- uh, Dr. Nathan Stahl. He's a geriatrician and a research fellow at the University of Toronto and Women's College Research Institute. My friend, we're going to, um, we've got to talk a little bit about this integration of healthcare and quality of life in, in our upcoming seminar. Yeah, we're going to talk about how it impacts you financially, how do you make sure that you have income for life and still deal with these potential costs of healthcare in the future. We're going to do this live online on Tuesday, April 21st, 7 p.m. Now, you need to go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. This is our first live online session that you'll be able to have access to us and our seminar and ask some questions and answers at the end of the program uh, on online with us. This is the first online one, again, on Tuesday, April 21st, 7 p.m. Register by going to morethanmoneyradio.com. All right, stick around after the break. Are we going to recession? We're going to discuss that. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR. Big question on everybody's mind is, are we going to go to recession because of the virus? Yeah, that's the big question that we're having. And how deep will this recession be if we are yeah. going into one? Yeah, so what's the economic impact? I mean, we'll, uh, we'll broaden the question a little bit. But nobody better to help us understand that than Avery Schenfeld, who's Managing Director and Chief Economist at CIBC Capital Markets. And I want to put a little plug in. I mean, Avery's been with CIBC since 1993, and I would say is widely recognized, Faisal, as one of Canada's leading economists. Absolutely. And we're, we're glad to have him. Avery, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Nice to be here. So um, we've got to do justice in 10 minutes, so let's maybe just cut to the chase. Uh, can you give us your sense of what the economic impact of the COVID-19 
virus is going to be on a global basis and on a national basis? Well, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, You take a global economy or even a Canadian economy that wasn't really growing all that well in the latter half of 2020, and then you overlay on it a series of body blows, everything from disruptions in global transport and supply chains uh, to a retrenchment in consumer and business spending on anything other than essentials, really. And, And in Canada's case, Uh, an oil price war between the Saudis and the Russians that are going to put pressure on every other country's oil sector, including Canada's. You have the makings of a recession that we think is is underway as we speak. Um, And it's it's not really a Canadian story. It's a global story. So we'll see recessions uh, through much of Europe, uh, the U.S. and Canada, for example. So, so Avery, is this going to be a technical recession? So just by the economic numbers, or are Canadians going to actually feel this one? I think this is one we're going to feel. We went through something that you might have called a technical recession in early 2015, when we had a a much larger fall in oil prices from peak to trough uh, that sent Alberta into an outright recession um, and actually had a couple of quarters of negative growth for Canada as a whole, But it was very regional, and the national unemployment rate didn't move up, so no one really talks about a 2015 Canadian recession. This one we think will feel like a recession. We're going to see, we believe, rising layoffs, higher unemployment, all of the things that usually go with uh, the term recession. How much, uh, I've heard the, the, I guess, the current uh, economic situation being defined as a, a potential U recovery. I've heard it referred to now as the Great Pause, like we've had the Great Depression, we've had the Great Recession. It's the Great Pause. So the expectation being that um, as, uh, as, as our behavior, as I guess a human population sort of goes on pause for a little bit and we self-quarantine and do all these things that you know are likely on the way, Avery, at what point when you know at what point does it come back and what does it look like and is it a, is it a sharp snapback? Just your thoughts on kind of what this might look like as it filters its way through the economy. So the term I'm using is hibernation. We're all going back into our caves to hibernate um, because literally people will stay inside, not not be spending money. Uh, and the, and where we go after that, it's it's almost an epidemiological forecast rather than an economics one. How soon? Does the dust settle? How soon can we start bringing back some degree of discretionary activity uh, without sending the caseloads soaring again? Unfortunately, we don't have a great picture of that. Um, China is claiming that they're able to do that, but they're still early in the days of bringing people back to work, and we don't really know whether caseloads are going to escalate there. I'd say the same story is true for South Korea, had success in bringing the number of new cases down. Uh, but not yet back to everyone's back at their normal uh, daily life. Uh, and, and even if we manage to get back some activities, I think what, the, what we're reading in the medical literature is that if we don't all get it in the next few months, which would be horrific for the healthcare system, unfortunately some base level of viral activity will be around for quite a while because we'll just have stretched out the number of cases, mm-hmm. which is good for our hospital's ability to handle it, but we'll still have lots of people who aren't yet immune, and therefore the disease could still be circulating. So our best guess right now, and it's, it's really a guess, is that perhaps economic activity will start to resume 
um, to move back towards more normal levels in the fourth quarter, but it remains to be seen. The other thing I would say about this is you're hearing lots of discussion about fiscal stimulus from Ottawa, putting money into people's pockets and so on. That might not get them spending much during this hibernation, but will, of course, leave them better positioned to start spending again when things get better. So part of the shape of the recovery will depend on how well we did tiding over households and, for that matter, businesses preventing a wave of bankruptcies so that we have everything in place when we can go out and shop again. Mm. Avery, from province to province, every individual province has their own economic situation going on. Alberta has been struggling for a while. We've been hearing how Quebec is now um, looking a lot better fiscally, at least, and economically. Um, Which provinces are going to be impacted with this deferral, this hibernation that you're referring to? Should Albertans be more concerned now because it's going to get worse and deeper for us or are other provinces more fragile or at risk of this whole uh, hibernation so this is going to affect every province there's there's very much not a corner of the economy that's not affected other than i suppose to some extent agriculture we still have to eat um but we're going to see it in you know pretty wide range of industries I would say that some provinces are in better position to actually dip into their pockets and do their own fiscal stimulus. Uh, you know, Quebec, in some sense, just issued a budget that had more than a 5% spending increase. It wasn't designed to be the coronavirus budget, but it will have at least some stimulative effect. The good news is, is that even in places like Alberta, which were intent on battling the deficit down to zero, you know, they've quickly recognize that this isn't the time to introduce new spending cuts beyond what they already had done in an attempt to meet their budget deficit target. So they're going to at least let the deficit rise as it will uh, to avoid uh, adding to the economic drag. But certainly the oil provinces, because they have that second impact of the fall in world oil prices, might be a bit more affected than others. But you go across the country, you know, BC is a fair tourism sector, particularly Asian tourists. They're going to feel that. Ontario could face disruptions in manufacturing. Financial services activity will slow. So there's really nobody who's uh, clean in terms of where we are right now. If you were in charge of the the stimulus package that would be needed either on a provincial basis here in Alberta or on a national basis, what would the package entail? So... It's going to have to be in the tens of billions because, you know, I, I, to put the numbers in perspective, if the, the government unleashes an extra $10 billion into the economy, that's only a half a percent of GDP. It's not really that much. So, you know, is this $20 billion? Is it more? It's got to be a number that sounds pretty big. Um, and then I think it's going to have to try to be targeted at A, Households that are affected by this. So, you know, do we do something for people, for example, who aren't unemployed but who are going to work fewer hours? Um, you know, there's some sort of uh, check that goes out to families. Do we do something for the business sector in terms of trying to think about how we can prevent a wave of small business bankruptcies? I think that's that's very tricky to to uh, to do. And then certainly Alberta is trying to make the case for you know, at least some consideration that the oil industry is facing, 
I think, a fairly tough period here for maybe a couple of years. Um, is anything done to either help the provincial government so that they can help uh, the Alberta economy or something more directly uh, for the industry? Those are things that are being thought about. It's, it's hard to come up with big plans in a hurry, though. These are, it's tough for the government itself to you know, turn the wheels of policy on a dime. Yeah, and I think we'll maybe have to leave it at that particular point, but I think that's the that's the key. It's tough to turn policy on a dime. Uh, we do have to come up with, I think um, governments have to come up with something more than what they've come up with, and we have to protect people that have been laid off either temporarily through no fault of their own. Yeah. And the cornerstone of our economy is small business. We can't have a bunch of small businesses going bankrupt because, you know, people aren't are out and uh, doing their thing for a two, three, four-month period. That'd be tough. Yeah. Avery, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate your insights. My pleasure. We've been joined by Avery Schenfeld, Managing Director and the Chief Economist at CIBC Capital Markets. Uh, we got to make sense of this. So this is a crisis. Um, it's unique to some expe- extent, but it's a crisis. We've got crisis all the time. Yeah. And as people retire and they've got nice, long, healthy retirements, Faisal, we're going to face lots of these different things. Correct. Right? And we're, if Avery is correct, we are in a recession or we're heading to a recession. Right. And so in these types of times, how do you manage your portfolio? How do you make sure you have income for the rest of your life? How do you make sure you don't take on way too much risk without seeing the reward for that? And so we're going to talk about this live online yep. on Tuesday, April 21st, 7 p.m. It's live online, so you have to register online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. All right, the question is, do you sell everything, or is this a buying opportunity right now? Stick around after the break. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Wasn't that just fun to hear? A little bit depressing. coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> It, the hibernation, the great pause, whatever you want to call it, right? Yep. Um, it will have an impact it, and, and certainly a temporary impact. The the unknown is how temporary. It's hard to hear that in Alberta because after everything we've gone through right. since the first drop of oil and now this price war and right. add-on coronavirus and you know we were we were hoping for some sort of recovery in this mm-hmm. province and then boom. Yeah, get the sort of the double whammy. Now, it raises an interesting question, and I, it's been a fascinating week. I've talked to a lot of people yep. uh, over the past two weeks, and uh, I, I got to tell you, it is an interesting mix of conversations. No question that there is fear, mm-hmm. right, out there, and you know the question, should we sell everything? And that generally means should we be selling all stocks, but everything. Um, I got to say, though, I think the conversation is now more tilted uh, towards... How do we take advantage of this? Should yeah. we be buying? Is it a buying opportunity now? Yep. Right? Because valuations do matter. And that's been partly because of our communication to the clients saying that Fair. there's opportunity coming. Mm-hmm. Fair. And they're like, is it now? Is it now? Is right. it now? But there's all there's that fear of should I get out? And that's panicking happening on some sides. Yeah. And there's opportunity. So do you do you sell out of this type in the market, Dave? Right. Or do you and I'll use a poker term, put all your chips in? Yeah. What do you do? You don't do either. Really? You don't do either, my friend. Um, wow. It's yeah. not news to me, but it's news no, for many I know, people. I know, I, I know. Listen, and, and I'm, clearly I'm not speaking to the day traders out there that are, you know, yeah. that are doing that. This is about, I'm speaking to investors. Yeah, so there's two, okay. gra- two yeah. groups of people that we're going to talk about. One we'll quickly touch on is those traders out there. They're mm-hmm. looking for short-term gain. Right, in the fast this, money stuff. Right, right? so we're not, we're not going to address that. That's a different breed, and we're going to let them do their thing. That's right. But 
majority of Canadians right. save money, invest it either through a mutual fund or the stock market, whatever, and they want to see this grow over time for some future spending. Yeah, That's what we're going to talk about. Um, so I, I've been calling it an investor's superpower. Okay, So Ooh. what is the investor's superpower? And um, we've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest to our listeners that the superpower for, a, for a, a long-term investor, somebody who's trying to fund a retirement, as an example, or maybe isn't that fast money trader, anybody but those people, the superpower is both structure and discipline. Okay? Um, structure for us means something different than probably for many because we run this four-bucket model. And uh, you know, part, part of the premise of what we talk about in our practice is in retirement, you have very different goals, and not all of those goals are aligned in terms of what um, what, what what the strategy should be for for um, financial assets. Correct. Okay, so you got to put them in different buckets to do different things, um, which is a structure first on its own. You no, know, exactly. And, and right? I just want to address one piece of it, yep. just because it's dramatic and it makes the point. Uh, we had an experience this week. Uh, one of our team members did with uh, a relatively new client to the practice, few years. Um, who's not retired yet, but is hoping to retire this year. And um, so we reached out, or one of our team members reached out to this person to see how she was feeling, and she was terrified. Okay, gosh, you know, she said, I had to put my retirement on hold back in 2008 with this experience, and she says, I'm never going to get to retire. And she was legitimately concerned. And uh, what had happened is we put in place an, an income bucket for her, and the income bucket for us is invested uh, very conservatively in fixed income. Yeah, there's not, no, there's in, not no in the stock market. There's yeah. no stocks, yeah. okay? And that's how we do it with our income bucket. Right. Yeah. Um, and as of, I guess, the conversation yesterday, that, that income bucket was, uh, uh, sorry, on, I guess it was a Thursday uh, conversation. Uh, when, it was, when she had it, the income bucket was, was positive for the year. And when she told her that, she cried on the phone, right? He, uh, really? Like, I'm, I've got income. It's protected. I, and it was amazing. I've got 10 years worth of income, and the amount of money I've put aside for 10 years worth of income has gone up right. in this market? Right. And so that was that's structure, right? So um, the, the income bucket is designed to insulate from those kinds Absolutely. of really giant shocks. And this is why we created it. Okay. So structure is one, yep. right? And we can go on and talk about all the four buckets, but that's a dramatic <laughs> example I thought was really worthy yep. of sharing with people. Okay. Number two is discipline. Okay. Okay. So we're going to talk about now the, the growth bucket because we do own risk assets, things like stocks in the growth bucket. And guess what? There's volatility in there. Absolutely. And that can be terrifying for people. Um, let's go to the question, I, and I pose it to you. Should we be in a position, should we, should we be selling everything today? No. Why? Because you're looking for that growth over a 10-year period. Right. You're that time frame that's allocated to this pile of money, and we call it a bucket, is a longer-term viewpoint of 10 years. And the job of that is to replace that income bucket in 10 years. Mm-hmm. So why would you sell today unless, unless you feel the markets are never going to recover over the next 10 years? Right. And we don't have that viewpoint. Right. Like businesses are not going to be worth less than they are today right. in 10 years, right. our opinion. You know, those types of things. So you don't sell out of everything. Right. Now, you can you can increase and decrease asset classes. We did make you yeah, know, some have, changes to the portfolio through this and period. So we move within the five pillars. That's right. But we're never going to go 0% in anything. Right. Because that's, that's diversification. And if you take a, a finance 101 class, what they tell you is the only free ride you get in finance is diversification. Right? And so with a balanced portfolio, if you're all stock, 
Okay? You have few choices of what to do in a down market. You could maybe rotate between cyclicals and defensive stocks and so on and so sure. forth. Okay? But from an asset class perspective, you're kind of an all-in bet. If you diversify it out to just adding bonds or add some cash, add some gold, add well, some alternatives. alternatives yeah. Okay, the more diversified you get, um, what happens is it is it balances out what's happening in each of the asset it classes. It reduces the volatility. Right. Now, it doesn't mean that things can't go down. Everybody needs to understand that there are periods where things will go up and down. It gives us the opportunity to recover faster. Why? Because we can do what? How do you take advantage of this we, now? We've taken less risk, so we lose less on the downside. Yeah. We can adjust the portfolio to match how the economy is transforming and that we can uh, you know, take on the upside as well. And that recovery is quicker. And you'll hear, in our in, you'll hear from people all across this country when they're at the age of retirement, mm -hmm. I don't have time to recover. Mm -hmm. Well, your portfolio shouldn't take too much time to recover. And we were looking at some data on Thursday, you and I, mm -hmm. and after that big crash, it's like you lost two and a half years of time if you just stayed 100% invested in the S&P yeah. 500. Yeah, if you were equity, yes, It right. could have been as much as five to six years on the Toronto stock market. Right. Just from what happened on Thursday. Right. Who has that kind of time in retirement? Right. That's what we're trying to protect. Right. And so do you put all your, do you cash out? No. Do you put all your chips in? No. No. Right. What you do is is you, you have to have, and I was riffing on this at the end of last year, right? I mean, I didn't know it was going to be a COVID nineteen yeah, crisis and stuff. That? Didn't know, but the you know the, the the riff that I was going on about is test your strategy today. And I had tons of conversations as did you with clients about we should be adding more to equities, more to equities, and trying to change strategy. Right, last year because there was FOMO, fear of missing out. Sure. Okay. Now there's the other fear, right? There's a fear of losing everything. Neither are right. So. Balance, have a strategy, and rebalance. And stick to that discipline, because that's, that's right. the key thing. That's right. Structure, structure and, and discipline. discipline. Got Love it. it. Okay, let's, Love it. Uh, let's finish So we're going to talk about the structure and discipline, how we've protected people and during these type of market volatilities, and how we're going to actually be able to provide income for people's retirement. And we're going to do this live online, Tuesday, April 21st. And because it's online, you have to register online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. Talk to you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.